Hey everyone, welcome back to the So We Speak podcast. This is Cole Fakes and I'm back with Terry Fakes and we are going to be doing the book of Job today. Now to our most fervent listeners, some of you may remember February 5th, 2019, because I just looked this up. We've done the book of Job before. We did a book overview on the book of Job. And for two reasons, we really wanted to come back and, and talk about some other things. The first one being Job is one of the most complex books in the Bible. Agreed. And it's one that even an hour overview that we did last time, which I would encourage you if you haven't heard it to go listen to that uh, as an overview of the book and the themes, um, there's still a lot to dive into. And especially today, it's kind of nice to be able to go into some of the smaller things, assuming the bigger picture, and uh, even to be able to discuss a, a few of the more minute or even some of the more scholarly things that feed into the way that we read this book. And so Job is a long book. It is a tiresome book. It is a really rich book, but it's one that probably deserves another podcast. So we wanted to take a run at a couple other facets of this book, and, and here we are. So we'll skip some of the information that we usually do in the background, but, but mm-hmm. one of the perplexing questions about Job is its background. We just don't know much about the background. Right. But we are not the kind of people who settle for, we don't know who wrote it, we don't know when it was written, we don't know to, to whom it was written. Um, so let's speculate a little bit, or let's at least survey what people think about the origins of the book of Job. Um, do you have a guess, or do you have an inclination as to who wrote this and when? Well, that's a good question because, and still being having a high view of scripture. So what I'm about to say doesn't diminish my opinion of the fact that this is inspired by God. But when something happened and when it was written down don't have to be the same thing. So when did this happen? It's my opinion, and I could be wrong, this is an opinion, just on my research, that I think it's probably mid-second millennium B.C. I think Job is someone who lived in the between Abraham and Moses era. So that's my opinion uh, based on just little things in the text, none of which are conclusive, but which are suggestive to me. When it was written down, since it is written in uh, third person, not first person, it's right. not like we think Job you know, did a podcast on this, and so it came right from his mouth. That I'm not so sure about because there appear to be some some things in the text, and I should have researched this so I could give you an example, that might be slightly anachronistic, which would indicate that it was written down at a later time. Sure. So I, my opinion is that it happened in the patriarchal period as far as writing it down. I doubt that too much time went by. Yeah, it seems consistent with a lot of the other works of the ancient world that are in this genre, which there are a lot of them in the ancient Near East that are similar wisdom books mm-hmm. with a hero in the middle. And this one is different for for some significant reasons, but it's not unusual for something like that to be oral for a couple hundred years exactly. to change and then to get written down. And so that certainly could have happened. It also could be that this is written down about a kind of idealistic older age that people reference, and it's set there. So you could have the events happen to Job, and it's not like King Arthur in the sense that, you know, we don't know if King Arthur actually existed, 
But it's in an age like that that everybody references about an event that happened then. Or I guess maybe a better example for us would be like the colonial founding or something like that. Right. And I guess what I would reject for various reasons, but I suspect most of our listeners would too, is the idea that Job is a King Arthur and centuries later, a brilliant poet on his own took this myth or this story or this oral tradition and created what we see here in front of us in Job. I reject that for a lot of reasons. but So I do think it's inspired, but I agree with you. It's most likely that it was codified after a period of oral transmission. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know what's funny? There's I love this podcast, Ask N.T. Write Anything, the Ask N.T. Write uh-huh. Anything podcast. He the, the episode that came out this morning was on wisdom literature, and it's really good. Um, but it's funny. It just reminded me there are a lot of people that don't think Job actually happened. Right. They think it's just and, – and, you know, there's good biblical reasons why people can make to say that. They're not just saying, I don't believe the Bible. They're saying, I don't think the Bible presents this as a historical event. Now, I do think it's a historical event, but the funny thing about this is N.T. Wright – he gets this question, do you think Job was an actual person, an actual event? And I was, I was listening to this part and I thought, oh, this is great. We're going we're gonna to do this podcast later. I'm going to share what N.T. Wright said. And in typical N.T. Wright fashion, and I love N.T. Wright. Yes. He talked for about three or four minutes on this, and I can't remember where he came down on this issue. He's, he's really, <laughs> he's got a strong mind and good ideas, but he's also a master at... Did he commit to anything he, here? He is unbelievable at not letting you know exactly where he comes down on things. Right. And I do love his scholarly stuff, especially. He's written a lot of good books. But I just mentioned that to say, even among evangelicals, even among conservatives, this is a live question. Is Job a historical person or not? And one of the things that I've heard people argue before is that there's a reference in Ezekiel chapter 14 to Job, right. to Daniel and Job, and who's the third person? Do you remember this? I should, but I don't. We'll have to flip over there and see. But anyway, the the point being, he references these people, and he basically says, even if someone were as righteous as these pillars of righteousness, Mm -hmm. then God would not spare them for their unrighteous deeds. And some people say that must mean that Job is a real person because Ezekiel references him. Except the fact that Daniel, in that case, was written after the book of Ezekiel. Even if you have a very traditional dating, just the way the chronology plays out, Daniel is is written afterwards, and they're in two different places. So this must be a different Daniel. Right. So I would always be wary of making the text say something that it doesn't say. I think the argument that Job was a historical person is found in the book of Job. I agree. So... You have this prologue that presents Job, not, and we talked about this in the book of Jonah as well, not just in a once upon a time kind of way. Mm-hmm. Although there are some stylistic things that make this very interesting the way his family, the amount of kids he has, the amount of sheep he has, all that. But it presents it, there is a man named Job. And plain and simple, we don't have to know anything else about Job to get the point of this book. But I happen to think that he is a historical person. Now, there are four clues in this book that we can use to try to figure out when this was written. I think this is the interesting stuff here. Again, none of these are conclusive, and we don't really know. But here's things that commentators have identified. The first one being the reception of Job. So in the Babylonian Talmud, for example, 
they thought that this was written, that, that this event happened, and it was written down later, as you said, mm-hmm. in the time of Abraham, because Job was married to one of Jacob's daughters. Hmm. Now, there's no biblical reason to think that, but one of the interesting interpretive lenses that the Jews would apply to things like this, they also do this to things like Melchizedek, it is to Jonah. Right. If there is an open thread in Scripture, right. they like to tie it to another open thread in Scripture. So they believe that the whole world is contained in the yes. Torah, in the Old Testament. So if there is a loose end somewhere, so for example, they think that Melchizedek was actually Noah's brother. So, see, you have this family that has an open end, has to be before the flood, who could it be? Melchizedek, you know, this fits perfectly. So this is an interpretive lens that's sometimes used. Maybe Job was married to Jacob's daughter. We don't know. I think that time period is probably about right. Yes, I have always taught that there's no evidence in this that Job is an Israelite, that Job is a, uh, a Jew, but it's clear that he believes in the one true God. Right. However, even the ESV Bible I'm looking at right now says the unknown author was probably an Israelite writing sometime in this period, so taking a more traditional Jewish take on this. The land of Uz, we don't know where that is. Nobody right. knows where that is. But it doesn't sound like a place that's in where an Israelite would live because we get this exhaustive list at the end of Joshua of everywhere basically the Israelites lived. But if you if, if it's written before that, if it happened before that, we may yes. not know. That's we may not know where exactly. all the descendants of Abraham had gone. And uh, especially if it's written before Joseph, to even call this person an Israelite doesn't make sense. Doesn't make sense. So right. there's a little bit of a discrepancy. Is if, if it were an Israelite, what would we even mean by an Israelite at this point? If it's written pre-Joseph, what I teach, and this is a preference. Again, I, w- I wouldn't be dogmatic about any of this because you don't know for sure. Is that it's written? Oh, roughly 1500, which basically by that I mean before the Israelites really become the Israelites in the land of Canaan, and. Uh, secondly, that Uz is probably a little southeast in either Arabia or Jordan today. Now, again, I wouldn't be dogmatic about that, but those things make sense. Yeah, I think the scholars come down. It's either pre, uh, it's either pre uh, Moses and the Israelites coming out of right. Egypt or post. There's, it's, it's got to be in the patriarchs, or it's got to be at the time of David. And then you have a third group that thinks it's written in like the second century. Um, after the exile and all of that. There's all, you can always find somebody that wants to date the book as late as possible. Job was a contemporary of Paul's at this point. In fact, if you are a liberal scholar, if you just answer 2nd century B.C. to anything in yes. the Old Testament, you're probably going to be in sync. Yes, but for, for our purpose, I think there's two general schools of thought. So the, the earlier one, the Babylonian Talmud, is a good reference for that. The second one that some people propose is that in Genesis 36, verse 33... There is a line of kings of Edom, and one of the kings of Edom is named Jobab. And in the Greek appendix to Job, there's a little comment that Job is Jobab. Mm -hmm. Again, trying to find a link in Scripture that might explain uh, a loose end. Right. I don't know. I like to think that. That would be kind of cool. I think what that speaks to that's interesting about the book is that Job does seem like a kingly figure. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that's worth mentioning. We're, regardless of whether he's the king of Edom or not, regardless of whether he's this Jobab from the patriarchal period, he does seem to be a king for two reasons. Number one, just the vast wealth that he has. Right. And two, the way he speaks about his former life when he's lamenting that he would stand at the gates, he's an elder of the city, he was blessing people, he was caring for the poor. Mm-hmm. He seems like a king, or at least uh, an Abrahamic kind of tribal right. lord uh, over yes. a big household of people, several hundred or thousands of people. Clue number three, so those are the two for the um, early date. Here's another real early date kind of clue. In Job 42.11, there's a word that is, I guess we would pronounce it casita, but it's a currency. So it's like a dollar, a casita, that is only used in the early parts of the Old Testament. So the only time we've ever found this word is in Genesis 33 and Joshua 24, mm-hmm. referencing the patriarch's period of right. time, that this was a currency used then. So there's three pieces of evidence for a very early. Here's one piece of evidence for a later kind of Davidic or Solomonic date. So in Job 7.17, sometimes people think that this is a quote from Psalm chapter 8. So this is where... Yeah, from David's psalm, uh, What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you love him? Right. And the ESV translates Job 7.17, What is man that you make so much of him and that you set your heart on him? Right. So that's another interesting thing. We don't. Whenever you have a reference like that, it's, it could go one way or the other. Is, right. it a, is this person quoting this person or is this person quoting this person? Mm-hmm. Um because Job reads like other wisdom literature from the ancient world, sometimes people want to date this in the time of Solomon's kingdom, which right. would be about 1,000 B.C. And if this is a quote, then that's a psalm of David. He would have to be an Israelite to know that. But then you say if there's some literary dependence there, then this would have to be written later. Again, it's possible that he just said something very similar to what David it later is, said. It is, and probably the biggest argument against making too much of that is the absolute lack of any other 10th century references in the book. Right. You would think that there would surely be some 10th century reference. Right. Something in, about... To something that was worship, happening at that time. Something about the sacrificial A tradition. System. It's hard to talk about anything without betraying your milieu because you just say things, you know, uh, that that are just so natural to you. So I'm not trying to rebut that. I'm simply saying don't read too much into that because if there were so little of that, you'd expect there to be more of that. Right. I think it, the fact that Job is in a vacuum, essentially, yes. there's no giveaways, Right. Uh, is part of the beauty of the book. I also think it's evidence for an earlier date. Uh, but I think it's part of the beauty of the book is it's not tethered to a specific historical situation. I think that's an important point. Again, I'm giving you an opinion now, but I also think the timeless nature, pardon me, the timeless nature of the way the book is written mirrors the timeless nature of the experience of Job. I think that's true. I don't know if that's intentional, but it, it certainly, those two things are there. So while we're diving into some of the scholarly reception of the book and some of the ways that people approach this book, let's talk a little bit about the outline of the book in terms of the way that scholars have appropriated this. So as we talked about before, there's there's a camp of people who don't think this is historical, in which case 
This is a literary creation. And so you begin to look at this as what would be consistent with a literary creation. And I want to go one step further than what you said earlier. It's not just that it can happen. It can be written down and be inspired. As we see in books like Psalms, for example, or like Proverbs, it can be written, it can happen, it can be written, and it can be edited all within the scope of divinely inspired scripture. So for example, we talked about this with Ezra and Nehemiah, and we talked about it in Psalms. There is evidence in both of those books and elsewhere in the Old Testament that you had something happen, you had something write it, and then you had somebody come along later and either compile, not change necessarily, but compile and put together or order in such a way that we have it in its final form. Now, the interesting thing when it comes to the book of Job is no one has ever found any source material for the book of Job. So in certain places in the Bible, the reason that people think that something might be a composite is because you found versions of it that are partial, or right. you found versions of it later on that don't have a section of it that you thought, well, that section didn't read quite like you know we thought it should anyway, so maybe this is a later interpolation because we have this version of it that doesn't have that. So this the, the probably the most prominent example would be like in John chapter 8, where you have the woman caught in adultery. You have John floating around in several manuscripts. That story is not there. Right. And then you have it in other places. So you say, well, maybe these floated around as two different documents. Right. That's never happened with the book of Job. Right. Which right off the right off the bat should should make us a little bit skeptical of saying things like, I don't think Elihu was original, or I don't think chapter twenty-eight should go where right. it goes. But I always take these things as to say, okay, if there is that drastic a change like in chapter 28, for example, mm -hmm. then that, that people are saying, I think 28 was added later. I think, you know, an editor came along and put this in there. What we should, what our ears should perk up to hear uh, as people who do think this is a unified whole is what thematically should we be seeing in this section that is so distinct that we better not miss it? Right. You know, what is it about chapter 28 or chapters 32 through 37? Or what is it about the intro and the outro right that some people think are not part of this book that are so distinct that they hold something really insightful or really informative in the way that we read the text. Yes, and one thing I'd like to emphasize so that we don't get lost in the weeds here, what we are saying is this text was an event that happened, it was written down, it was edited, and anything that appears out of place from a textual point of view may very well have a meaning and a purpose. The alternative approach which would say this didn't necessarily happen. It just came about by uh, oral traditions coming together in a very human sense. The point I'd like to make is the only evidence that that is true is working backwards from the text. It's textual criticism. So it's not, for example, like someone dug up uh, uh, something in the desert that said, oh, by the way, Job never really actually lived. That was just a really cool story. Right. No one has any hard evidence. They just look at the book and they say, well, as a literary creation, it's possible that 28 doesn't belong because it doesn't seem the same. You could just as easily say 28, as you just did, 28 must have a really important point to make for him to break style. Right. So I just want people to understand there's no hard evidence. It's sort of a reasoning backwards from what if I broke this text into pieces and pretended that it wasn't inspired? Right. Well, and, and people do the same thing with like 
2 Corinthians, for exactly. example. You know, so this happens all over. And one of the reasons I want to point this out in Job is because it's a really unique case that right. it actually only exists as a whole. So let's talk about the outline for a moment because this is really interesting. So you, you begin with three chapters of narrative. You get the introduction. You get the two hearings before uh, the throne of God where Satan comes and accuses Job. And there's a whole development here on Satan. And different people want to make different things out of this. And I think we're going to come back to him shortly. Mm -hmm. But you get the opening scene with him, with God. Then all of a sudden we go down and things happen to Job. And we get at the end of chapter 3, his friends come. They sit with him on the ground for seven days and seven nights. And they don't say anything. And then after that, Job finally opens his mouth and curses the day of his birth. So the poetry section runs all the way to the outro, which is in 42, verse 7. You get poetry from 3. You get a brief little uh, narrative section when Elihu comes. Right. But otherwise, you get poetry all the way through. And the way this is arranged is really interesting. There are three cycles of speeches. And the speeches are Job's three friends and a response. So you get... Uh, Eliphaz, and then Job, and Bildad, and then Job, and Zophar, and then Job. And that takes you, the first cycle takes you from chapters 4 through 14. Mm -hmm. Then they do the exact same thing again, verses or chapters 15 through 21. Eliphaz, Job, Bildad, Job, Zophar, Job. Then you get to cycle number 3, and things change. So this is from chapters 22 through 31, but with 28 in the middle, we'll talk about in a moment. But you have Eliphaz and then Job. You have Bildad and then Job. Then all of a sudden you have an interruption. You have a very long speech from Job that goes through 31. And then where we would expect to have Zophar reply, what happens? Elihu, the someone we did not know was there until chapter 32, out of his frustration with the three older men, from 32 to 37, makes a speech to Job, giving his view of how to convince Job that Job is a sinner, basically. Yeah, and people have commented different things about this Elihu section. So he comes in kind of out of nowhere. Like you said, we don't even know that he's there at this point. He's not a character that's been announced so far. But the, the narrative gives us a little bit of introduction as to what he's doing. So in chapter 32... Elihu had waited to speak to Job because they were older than he, so he's respectful, mm -hmm. uh, at least in that sense. Uh, and when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. And so he gives his response in chapters 32 through 37. And commentators have made really different things out of Elihu's speech. I mean, right. Elihu is clearly um, tracking with the other three because he gives basically a summary of what the other three have said. He says it a little bit differently. His paradigm is is not really fundamentally different than theirs. Right. He's saying a lot the same thing, same theology, basically. You know, we covered this mm -hmm. in the first podcast, but I'll just recap this here. Job's friends, all three of them, have basically the same theology. Mm -hmm. God is just. He punishes evil and rewards good. Job is being punished. Therefore, Job must have done something bad. Right. That, I mean, that's basically the theology. Yeah. There's, it takes a long time to say that, but mm -hmm. that's basically what they say. And Elihu shares that perspective for the most part. Now, people have commented on the style of poetry among these three. And this is something really interesting about the book, is that all three of them have a different poetic voice. 
all three of Job's friends, Job, Elihu, God, they all have different That's poetic really voices. That's really significant, Cole, because one of two things has to happen here. is either the simplest explanation, this really happened, and you have different speakers. Right. Or you have a poet so brilliant that he yes. can make up different styles for his different characters and not just saying different things, but saying it in really different ways. Right. Is that, would you agree with that? Absolutely. I mean, it, I think it is it is the brilliance of the poet to be able to capture these speeches this way and to do it stylistically this way, really presenting us with these three different voices and Job's voice and Elihu's voice. And then you see that they are they are actually different levels of poet here. So Job is a very poetic speaker. The other three are kind of medium poetic speakers. Elihu is not as good. He's young. He hasn't mastered his craft yet. Right. Yahweh is the best speaker, as you would guess. Yes. When when you get the final intervention from God. I mean, in verses 38 through 41. Those are some of the best chapters, verses. What compares in the Bible in the, in the whole Bible? Job 38 to 41. God speaks very good Hebrew. <laughs> and uh, he is very poetic. And which is appropriate for someone who basically says uh, to Moses, who made man's mouth? Right. You know, he shows it in these three chapters. The interesting thing about the outline is you can you can parse this a couple of different ways. Either, like we said earlier, you have people that think, oh, this is just something's wrong here. You, this, this doesn't flow. Mm-hmm. Or you say, basically, Zophar runs out of steam and Elihu steps in where he should have been. And then God speaks after that where Job should have spoken. Mm-hmm. And God addresses Job. That's the interesting thing. Is right. at, after the words of Job come to an end, which is at the end of verse 31, or uh, uh, chapter 31, verse 40, then you have God take up where basically Job left off. He doesn't really respond to Elihu. Uh, God speaks then in verse 38 back to Job. And here's one of the interesting themes that comes out because of this rotation. So Job is going back and forth and back and forth. And in the other epics that are like this in the ancient world, eventually the person figures out what it was that they did wrong. Mm-hmm. Or, event, or, or they say, I don't know what it was that I've done wrong, but if you can show me what it was, show me. And eventually the friends do or something like that. Never in this whole book does Job admit that he might have done something wrong. He pleads his innocence the whole time. And never does God accuse Job of doing anything wrong. In fact, it's the friends that get accused right. uh, of speaking without knowledge. And they get, a, they get a pretty vicious response from God. But the dialogue follows three cycles, and God gets the big response at the end, and Job gets a short response mm-hmm. to God. And then we get the narrative outro. Anything else you want to point out from the structure of this book? No, I don't think so, uh, other than what you had pointed out. If you take the end of Job's last speech in 31, mm-hmm. it says, and Job finished talking. And then you skip Elihu and you go to 38, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Right. That, that is why, just from the text, I mean, there's no evidence of this, but if you just took end of chapter 31 and butted it up to 38, you don't even need a like you in this book. Right. Textually. Sure. As a document to make it make sense. Now, I would argue content-wise, a like you adds to yeah. the point of the book. But that would be one of the reasons that a text critic might say, well, oh, Elihu probably was added later because I don't have to have it. Right. Right. Let's go back and talk about 
Satan for a moment. So this this is a, a part that troubles people when you read this book. So you get this beginning of Job, you get the heavenly court of God, and they're making their, their presentations. It's like they're having a committee meeting or something, or the class officers come and report to God. And when they're doing that one day, uh, Satan also comes. Now, Satan is the accuser. That's what that word means, or the adversary, or I think in John Walton's commentary, he says the challenger, someone who challenges God. And to be specific, in the Hebrew, it has the article. Mm-hmm. It's ha-satan, mm-hmm. the Satan, the right. adversary, the accuser. Right. It's actually, in the Hebrew, reads as a title. You know, and this is interesting. The commentators sometimes make a big deal out of this. How does the concept of Satan develop over the course of right. the Old Testament? Now, a lot of times this is predicated on not recognizing the serpent in Genesis Three as Satan, because that kind of throws a big kink into the whole. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a personal Satan until you know after the exile or something. Because if if the serpent is Satan in Genesis three, then you already have a personal right. devil. You already have a personal Satan early on, and I think that's I think that's what we do have in the Bible. I agree, but it is interesting in the Old Testament how little you hear about Satan through all of the Old Testament. I think probably the most clear picture of Satan is in the book of Job in the beginning. And then later, we don't really get a crystal clear, similar picture until we get to the book of Zechariah, Mm -hmm. which is not one that we study very much, but is full of really interesting Mm -hmm. uh, pictures. And in Zechariah, you have the high priest who is being accused by Satan. Uh, Joshua, the high priest, this is in chapter three of Zechariah. He showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand. Here, this is also Ha-Satan. This is the Mm -hmm. accuser. Standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. And um, he stands by Joshua. Very similar picture to Mm -hmm. what we get in Job. And so I actually think this is a major point of consistency across the Old Testament. That you have the opposer, the accuser, the challenger of God, who is a being who is not a human. He's an angel. And he has powers that are beyond human. But he is no match for God. Right. In the sense that sometimes it really disturbs people that God gives permission for Satan to go and do this to Job. I actually think the reverse is true. Can you imagine if Satan didn't have to get permission right. from God to go and do these things? Now, we'll talk at the end a little bit about what this means about God, because people are still troubled. Yes, but why didn't God just say no? You know, it's. But I, I don't want us to miss the fact that the fact that God has this much control over what the devil can and cannot do should be a very comforting thing for us. Good for you to flip us. that lens around. Because we do look at it and say, why did God allow this? I can personally think of two or three reasons God might allow it, just as a human being. But the bigger and better question is, ooh, look at how limited Satan is. Yeah. His actions, I would argue this, his actions are only permitted to the extent God uses them for good. Right. We actually get a very feeble Satan in this. It's kind of funny that at the end of Revelation, for example, you see a Satan that appears to be much stronger than the one here. This is right. a pretty feeble 
Satan. So anyway, God gives him permission to strike Job and mm-hmm. take away everything that he loves. And so he does that. Job is in misery. He sits, cries out, you know, his friends talk, God finally answers. Um, but Satan makes a very specific charge that I think it's easy to get lost in all the poetry talking about why do bad things happen to good people. I think that's what we talked about in the last episode. I think that is a major theme of the book of Job. But that's not, it's really Satan's, that's not Satan's charge. Right. Satan's charge is nobody really serves you without a reward. That's basically what he's saying. Job would not serve you if you hadn't put that hedge of protection around him. Right? That's what he basically accuses God of. So this makes an interesting point. Who is Satan accusing here? Job or God? I actually think in some ways Satan is accusing God in this story. You are not worth serving for your own sake. People will not serve you for your own sake. They only serve you for what you can do for them. Right. A very satanic thing to say. It is. And I want to connect this with a legend, which I happen to think probably has some merit to it. So the, the Jewish idea of Satan is this. God creates humanity, the angels look on, and God loves humanity. As, as uh, David's going to say in Psalm 8, you made us a little lower than the angels, and yet look how you've elevated us. Mm-hmm. And so Satan was an angel who said, God said, you're going to be my messengers to serve them. I'm going to do great things through them. And Satan says, those puny creatures, there is no way that the most beautiful angel in the world is going to serve these dust-grubbing little creatures that you have made. Mm -hmm. And so he despises humanity. And he says, they're not worth me serving them. They're going to serve me. And in that, he rebels against God. And so if you assume for a minute that context, I think you're right, Cole. Here he's saying, you know what, God? I know you love these creatures, and I know you think they believe in you, but you're a fool. Yeah. They're not. And in fact, as he says before, stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. So it's very consistent with Satan's, uh, the fact that he despises humanity and he rebels against God. Mm -hmm. And I do think that's what you see here. So he is accusing Job, but frankly, through Job, he's accusing all of us, Mm -hmm. humanity. Yeah, and this puts God's deal with Satan, as we sometimes call it, in a Mm -hmm. really different light. Because what is at stake here? It's it's no longer it's it's no longer in the realm of why do bad things happen to good people? Why does God allow Satan to do something so terrible to Job when Job was a righteous person? Instead, what it becomes is is God worth serving without the stuff? Right. That's the major challenge that that's, the devil brings against God. That's the essential God. question of Job. I'm not saying that why do bad things happen to people that don't seem to deserve it is not a question in Job. The no, central is. question is, what does it take for people to serve God? Yeah, and I think this is where God, you know, nowhere in here does God get antsy or insecure. Right. God, the, the fact that he grants permission should be comforting to us in the sense that God understands something that Satan does not. Satan thinks that people only serve God because of what he's given them. That's what he says in the, in, in the first half of chapter 1. Uh, you've put a hedge around him. You've blessed the work of his hands. If you remove that, he would curse you. God is not threatened by that because he knows that he actually is worth serving for his own sake. For his own sake. 
Right. And that the best thing that humanity could ever have is not the blessings of God in terms of material possessions or family or health or any of that. God's playing the long game here. So he knows that the best thing that could ever happen for a human is to be in his presence, which Satan despises. Right. So he's fine with this because he knows that actually for Job, what you get when you serve God is not just God's stuff. It's God himself. Right? This is the whole point of the gospel is that what Jesus buys for us is not a better life. Right. He, exactly. he dies and he purchases the righteousness of God so that we can be reunited with God. This is where Romans 5.1 is such an important verse mm-hmm. that we sometimes leave out of our Romans road um, right. kind of gospel presentation is, since we have been justified by Christ, now we are reconciled to God. We are back in right relationship with God. We've been able to come back face to face with him. And that will increase through yes. this life and the next. Right. We'll be in the presence of God. This is something that David understood. David writes all over the place. It is good for me to be near God. Mm-hmm. You know, Psalm 27. One thing I've asked that I would be able to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord all the days of my life. Yes. He understood that it's that, that being in the presence of God is better than any of the things that God gives. And what God is doing with Satan is he's about to show him that this is true in the life of Job. Right. I'm reminded of Paul in Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that the sufferings of this present world don't even compare to the glory that will be revealed. Right. And uh, you get this throughout the scriptures that... We want God for God's sake. Right. And this is a this is a major paradigm shift from the way that we typically evaluate this book. Yes. It's very unfair that he loses all of his stuff, but he gets God. Right. So a biblical worldview, I think one of the things this is teaching us is to say, we are not denying that this was miserable. Mm-hmm. This was physically miserable. But in the end, if Job loses everything and gains God, he's still up. Right, that's still a satisfying, and, and especially in the light of the eternity. We don't even talk about right. that in this book. But in light of eternity, life without all the stuff, life of sickness, life of misery is real, but it is a blip on the radar of what God is looking at. So Satan is the one with a very short-term perspective, very materialistic perspective. Job and God both understand something that Satan does not that there is a bigger perspective, that humanity was created to be in the presence of God. And like I said, and Satan despises that. Yes. So I like to frame the book that way. I like to think about it that way. I think the last message I gave on this was called God for the Sake of God. I, I, I think, think that that's really very is true to the text. It's the only way to answer the, the theodicy question of this book because one of the commentators I was reading pointed out that What's interesting about how God responds to Job and to his friends at the end of this is God does not defend his justice. He only defends his knowledge and his power. Exactly. So, you know, if God were trying to, if God were trying to operate on the framework that Satan is operating on, he would have to then defend his justice. But instead, he has a completely different paradigm in which all he has to do is show that Job and Satan and everybody else don't know enough to be able to make a determination about what's going on in this situation. Um, All he does is defend that he is all-knowing and all-powerful. I think that's significant because we want God in 38 to 41 when he speaks in two speeches with little interruption by Job in the middle. We want him to, to explain why this is fair. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't. In the first speech, he says, where were you? In other words, you don't know the beginning of the story. 
you can't possibly know the end of this story. And then the second part in 40 is he deals with the idea of justice. And here's my favorite verse from that is in chapter 40, verse 8. He says to Job, dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you. Will you put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me so that you may be in the right? I'm going to tell you how Terry interprets this. You want to evaluate me by your sense of fairness? Mm -hmm. Then he goes on and he says, I'll tell you what. If you want to be the judge of the word of the earth, look on everyone who is proud, verse 12, and bring him low. Tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then I'll acknowledge to you your own right hand can save you. In other words, if you are powerful enough to set things right in the world, mm -hmm. then you can judge me by your standard of fairness. Mm -hmm. He basically doesn't explain why it's fair. He simply says, you have no idea what justice looks like. Mm -hmm. I like that. At first, when I first read this, Cole, it bothered me. Then I thought, no, that's exactly right. And it really goes all the way back to chapter one. Mm -hmm. And basically he is saying, I was right to Satan and Job, uh, this is where I stand. You know, the other interesting thing is when he rebukes Job's friends, he doesn't rebuke Job. When you read this, you realize, well, Job has doubts. Job has a complaint against God, and mm -hmm. yet Job is constantly praying to God. God's not mad because Job doesn't understand. God is pleased because Job didn't curse him to his face when he lost everything. Yeah. God was right about Job. Yeah, and, and we see that because Job doesn't have to make restitution at the end of this. Right. In fact, I think, so sometimes we read God's response like he's angry with Job. And I actually wonder if he is angry at Job. I think he is angry with Job's friends, probably, the way mm -hmm. that this reads. But but actually, he he doesn't have to forgive Job. He doesn't make Job make restitution. Right. He doesn't have to be um, appeased by sacrifice or something because we don't get any indication in here that any sin has been committed by Job. When God answers Job, it's to make the point that God wants to make, but it's not to fault find with Job. I like Job's answer in 42, verse 3. He says, you know, you asked, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He says, and this is Job's, this is a natural response to being taught something you didn't know, as opposed to being chewed out, because I agree with you. I don't read this as God chewing him out. He says, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. That mm -hmm. seems to me to be the response of a man who said, you know, God, I didn't see the big picture here. Yeah, and I love in verse 5, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Yes. Therefore, I repent. I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, or I'm comforted in dust and ashes. He yes. is of small account, he says before this. That's the perspective change that comes through what God actually does answer. He never says, oh, you know what, God, this makes total sense. In the end, I'm still going to end up 51% good things and 49% bad things after right. all this. No, he says, I had heard... But now I see I had other things I didn't get, but now I understand this is too wonderful for me to even grasp. You know, from a pastoral point of view, I wonder what you think of this. But when I think of that verse that you just read, 
Now my eyes see you. I have talked to so many people and have experienced this on a lesser scale myself. But for example, people that come through cancer come through extremely difficult circumstances. And afterwards, no one said, gosh, that was fun. Mm-hmm. But I can't tell you how many Christians have said, my trust in God is deeper. And right. what they're really saying is, I know God better and I trust him more. And I have felt that too, coming through difficult things. I think that's exactly right. I think I was preaching on this this last week, actually. There's two ways that God solves the trouble in our life. Either he gets rid of the trouble, mm-hmm. which he does sometimes. He yes. heals, let's say. Yes. But then what he does most of the time is he actually draws near to the sufferer in such a way that the presence of God ends up being more valuable than whatever it was that they were longing for. So it's like a good circumstance without God can be a bad circumstance, but a bad circumstance with God can be a good circumstance. Yes. And God draws near and stands by. I think Eugene Peterson put it this way. It's not always God's way to stop the fight, but it's always his way to stand by the fighter. Mm-hmm. And that, I think, is what happens a lot in our suffering, is our suffering is preparing us for the eternal weight of glory, we read in Romans. Um, and we also see that you know our suffering sometimes is discipline. And that doesn't mean that everything that happens, every cancer or anything like that, is always discipline. But sometimes we're being disciplined to turn away from the things of the world and turn towards God. And God does that for children that he loves, Hebrews says. So I think God's presence is what Job experiences. And I think that actually is the point of almost all suffering is in our suffering, we find the presence of God with us, never leaving, never forsaking. Um, John Walton says, kind of as a conclusion here, God's ways may be inscrutable to us. We may not understand what he's doing, but they are never pernicious. And I think that's one of the big takeaways in the book of Job. Amen. Thanks for listening to the So We Speak podcast. If you like what you hear, go ahead and leave a comment, leave a review, email us, tell us what you like about it, tell us what you'd improve about it. Thanks to all you guys who are listening, and we'll see you next week on the So We Speak podcast.